Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and my co-host, Matt Scott, is not with us today because it's his birthday. So happy birthday, Matt, and thanks for being such an awesome co-host and friend. You have made such a difference in this podcast, so thanks for being you and happy birthday, man. And I have a good friend and a, a wonderful guest today, Dave Souza. Dave has been literally my neighbor next door, runs a company called Turn Overland, and they bring in uh, windows and doors and other accessories for vans and campers, et cetera. I really look at Dave as a polymath. He is really one of the few that I have met in my life that has managed to create mastery in so many different levels of his life. And as we're going to talk about today, that has really come from his experiences. And that's going to be kind of a thread that we're going to have through this conversation. So David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. God, it is really an honor to be here. I'll tell you, I've been a a fan of the podcast uh, since the very first uh, episode. So I never thought that I would be sitting here in this seat, but it really is an honor to be. Uh, you're you're Thanks so happy. Yeah, you're so welcome. Now, I just so appreciate you being on on the podcast. And we, and we were just talking right before we started recording about what, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking a, um, Egyptian licorice tea. This was actually given to me as a gift. Um, I like licorice teas. Oh, nice. This is really good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It keeps my throat clear. Too, oh, so. okay. Oh, that makes sense. And my voice clear. Because you you also seem to enjoy coffee too, so maybe you have your coffee in, you have your coffee in the morning and I then do. move to teas right. after that. That's exactly what. Oh, that's yeah. smart. <laughs> yeah, when I first started the business, Jeremy Edgar was one of my first employees, and he he had grown up. Part of his youth was in Argentina, mm-hmm. so he drank mate tea every day, uh-huh. and he wouldn't drink coffee. He just he would walk around with this right. little bowl with a and they called it a bombija, which is the straw, uh-huh. and he'd be walking around drinking mm-hmm. his mate tea. Yeah. For most of the day. And he, and what he liked about it was he never really had that kind of caffeine crash. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's smart. And so many travelers tend to drink tea over coffee. They've maybe learned from the long haul. Right. So yeah, well, and it's also easier because they don't have to clean up and so forth. Yeah, that's true. Tea bag, you know, oh, that's so true. Tea and it's, e- it's easier to clean up. Oh, that makes, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. Model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. Well, what I, I think it would be fun to make the listeners aware of some things that you have done. And, and one of the ones that many of the listeners will know of is the Top Truck Challenge. And maybe give us the background on that. I can't remember okay. if you were in the first year or one of the very first years of the event. And so tell us what you drove and how that experience was for you. So I was in the, I was in the very first event, which was, was really something. And um, what had happened was just to back up a little bit. I had I'd taken a trip around the U.S. in a little Honda Civic and I came back in 19. 1987, and I decided that I really wanted to do more of this, right? So I wanted to build a vehicle that was even more capable. So I started this in late 1987, and I finished the vehicle, I think, in 1992 or 93. So it was many years it took me to build this. But um, some friends of mine had taken a photograph of of the truck, and they'd sent it to Four Wheeler Magazine um, because they had heard that, you know, they were going to have this new event. They were looking for contestants and all this stuff. So this was unbeknownst to me. And there was something like, there were 300 and some applicants, I guess. And out of the 300 and some, they chose 10 that they wanted there. And I was uh-huh. one of them. So I get this letter in the mail from Four Wheeler Magazine <laughs> about something that I wasn't even sure what it was about. <laughs> and in the beginning, I wasn't sure that I, I wanted to do it because it didn't seem like the right venue for me. You know, I mean, this Four Wheeler Magazine was a magazine that I liked to read. And I I was into four wheeling for sure. Yeah. But what I'd built really wasn't a four wheel drive vehicle in that sense. It was 
an expeditionary vehicle is what I called it. Um, and you would call it an overlanding vehicle now. The word didn't exist then. <laughs> yeah. um, Certainly but, wasn't properly used yet. No, exactly. So I thought, well, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like taking a motorhome to an autocross race. <laughs> what the hell am I going to do with that? Yeah. So, um, but I did decide to go because I thought, you know, this is a chance for me to really test that aspect of the vehicle. And um, so it was an opportunity. And I just got the vehicle running. I'd hardly had a chance to drive it. So I hadn't had a chance to shake it out. And I was just, you know, I wasn't even used to driving it yet. You know, that's a big deal. Yeah. Being able to drive the vehicle, being really accustomed to the vehicle is sure. So I took a vehicle that I was unaccustomed with that had never been tested to a contest with some of the best in the country. Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of a gutsy, maybe a stupid move, <laughs> but um, I really felt good about that. So it was, it was And you, experience. as I recall, <clears throat> you won best engineered as, on that event. And that, that had to have felt really good because I would certainly, as one of your many talents, I would certainly describe you as an engineer. And right. I believe that that is what you started your professional career right. as, and That's you right. worked with Intel for many years. So how long did you work with Intel? I worked for Intel for 14 years. 14 years. Yeah. Wow. And I worked in the tech industry a total of uh, about 18 years. Okay. Yeah. So a long time in the tech industry. And then uh, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that uh, Intel was giving people sabbaticals mm -hmm. and you took some time off. And what, what was some of the first things that started to change for you as a traveler from those, maybe the, the early backpacking trips and that mm -hmm. early sabbatical that you made? What were some of those lessons that you, you drew from those experiences? I think that uh, I was really starting to question my life's direction by seven years into my profession. And I really started to see that the things that fed my soul, I, I really wasn't getting from my work. And so uh, the trip that I took at the seven-year point was a chance for me to really kind of evaluate those things. I'd always been very comfortable in nature. I liked the outdoors. I loved to travel. I loved the sense of adventure. And even though I was very successful and what I did. And it was very interesting. And I was working with some of the most intelligent people possible. I just wasn't finding the satisfaction in it. Sure. So, um, yeah, the trip around the country was uh, a little over three months, a little over 14,000 miles. It's a lot of driving in three a months. A lot of driving. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was in a little Honda Civic that I had actually set up for autocross racing because <laughs> I've always liked vehicles. And I bought a, a Honda CRX SI. Um, Those are fun. And I had it set up for autocross racing and it was a blast. But that was the car that I took around the country. A <laughs> tiny hatchback. <laughs> Perfect. And I just, I lived out of the car. I didn't spend a single night in a hotel. I did spend a few nights with uh, friends around the country that I knew. Yeah. But other than that, I was in the car the whole time. Wow. And um, it was a very sparse existence. Yeah. And it was some of the best time of my life. And certainly one of the most transformational times of my life. Because over the period of those months, I really, I really was able to nail down the things that were important to me in life. Yeah. They were, none of them were material. Yeah. And so when I came back, I was pretty much committed to making changes and it took a long time, but, um, I did make those changes and I incorporated them into my life. Yeah. It's been fascinating <clears throat> to hear some of those other stories that came later. And it seems like that you've had these moments of time where you've either been able to be involved with a company like Intel, and then you go through this, through this journey, maybe in the wilderness to a degree, right? Yeah. And then you, you come up with another idea that consumes your creative efforts. And then it seems like you come back into the wilderness again. And, and as I remember you mentioning that you spent uh, quite some time in the wilderness of Wyoming, right. uh, that is, that is such an interesting story. What, yeah. what, brought you to decide to literally go solo off the grid completely into the middle of nowhere. And then what did you learn from that experience? So there again, um, and you're right about that. I have gone through these cycles and that was, I guess, the second major cycle that I went through. I'd done some engineering consulting and I'd had a couple of businesses at that point, but I was really at a turning point in my life where, again, I was searching for meaning, if you will. And I decided that I needed to take a time out and I needed to do something really solitary yeah. to a large extent. So I got involved with this uh, remote property caretaking mm. and there are people out there that have these large tracts of remote land. They want somebody out there to kind of keep an eye on things. And these are jobs that nobody wants because yeah. they're hard, they're scary, 
They yeah. don't pay anything. I mean, it's, you know, it's a miserable deal. So I got those jobs easily. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. So I said, I'll take them. So yeah, the thing in Wyoming, there was a guy that owned a 21 square mile ranch. There was an old homestead on it that was at the bottom of a valley. The homestead was built in, I think, 1890 or 1891. It, you know, none of the buildings were habitable at this point, but he wanted to start to do some restoration on them. And I said, I would work on that. But yeah, I lived out there uh, for an, an entire summer. I moved wow. in um, early May in the middle of a snow storm. That was the beginning of it for me and spent the whole summer out there. And did you find that, I mean, maybe it's the combination of that, but did what did the, the physical work do for you? Was that something that you enjoyed and what did you learn from that? And then I would suspect that you probably had a lot of time for stillness and right. personal thought. And what did you learn from that quiet time. Right. Well, it was a lot of physical work for sure. Um, I was pretty exhausted at the end of each day. Yeah. Um, and it was also uh, the most solitude that I'd ever experienced in my life. I mean, even the times when I've done a lot of solo traveling, but, and I've done a lot of backpacking solo, but they've been for a few days at a time or a week, you know, maybe even up to two weeks, but we're talking about an entire summer without, with hardly any human contact. And that was a much different thing. Yeah. And uh, you really, you really get inside your own head in that time. Mm. You know, there's a, a period of time where, you don't feel it so much. And then beyond that, you really, you really have to learn to live with yourself and you really yeah. have to understand yourself. You have to understand your fears and face them. You have to understand your anxieties and face them. So I think that, um, it gave me confidence actually in myself. Yeah. Um, and it, it could have gone either way, I suppose. I could have gone sure. screaming into the night, you know. Yeah. But um, I found that I could count on myself, and I found that I wasn't the worst company. Yeah. And um, it gave me a, a chance to really sort through a lot of things that, that I was out there to do. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, where I was, there was there was no communication of any kind. There was no cell phone. There was no internet. There was no anything. And so not only was I uh, without human contact, but I was without any sort of safety line. Yeah. So if a rattlesnake got me or if an animal got me or if I fell and broke a leg, it could be weeks before I was mm. found, if I was ever found. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, um, you may have just gone in back into the environment in a I, way, right? I might have. I might have just gone back into the environment. Yeah, that's interesting. When I, when I first got out of the Air Force, I knew that I didn't want to move back to California where I grew up. Mm. And I moved on to my aunt and, aunt and uncle's ranch mm -hmm. and it was a 56,000 acre ranch. And there were people there. My aunt and uncle were there and, and my wife at the time was there and everything else. But it was some of my best memories because you would wake up in the morning and you'd put a saddle on a horse mm -hmm. and you would ride fence line. And it was just, it was actually a very beautiful existence. And I knew it was not what I wanted to do with my life, but to do that for a year and a half while I was going, all I was doing was working on the ranch and going to college. And that was, I learned a lot about myself during that time. So I think it's good for, and maybe that's what draws so many of us as overlanders to the outdoors, to the backcountry is this idea of let's get remote, let's get some stillness, even if it's with just the people that we love, but get some stillness, get some time in our heads and figure out that we actually like our own company. And we build some confidence that we could then apply to life after that fact. Yeah. I think there's really a I think there's really a couple of aspects of that. One is that um, you need the change of scenery because you need a, a change of reference frame for your life. You know, mm. if you wake up every morning, you look out the same window, you see the same things. And after a while, you know, your brain just naturally doesn't see anything. Yeah. Um, but if you wake up every morning and you look at it and you look out a different window and you see something different, then it forces you to assimilate things in a new way. It will bring things to you that you wouldn't have ordinarily learned. And then the stillness is the other part of this, and that is the, the assimilation of what you've learned. In other words, you learn a lesson and then you have to internalize it. And that yeah. comes through the stillness. Yeah. So, so travel allows us both of those. It allows us a new frame of reference and it allows us the, the time and the luxury to assimilate those things. Yeah. And oftentimes we don't, we're so bombarded with communications right. and entertainment right. and a distraction that right. we really don't have that time to be still and learn the lessons and realize that we've gained a lot of confidence as travelers exactly. or whatever else. Now, uh, coming back a little bit to the top truck challenge, mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the things from that vehicle that you realized worked really well and you would want to incorporate into future projects? And then maybe what were some things that you realized that you wouldn't incorporate into future projects? Well, of course, even back then I had a real, um, a real appreciation of the value of keeping a vehicle light. Mm. keeping this the center of gravity low and those sorts of things. And what was the vehicle that you had for that? Well, it event? started out with a started out being a 73 Ford F250. But I mean, from there, you know, it went down to a bare frame, the frame got severely modified 
parts came in from all over the place. I mean, it almost was a handmade vehicle by the time it was done. Wow. But only, the only things I used off the original vehicle were, I think, the, the cab itself, the doors, and the frame. Wow. And that's about it. Wow. Everything else came from somewhere else. The motor came from somewhere else, the transmission. I, um, a lot of the suspension I designed and built myself. A lot of the chassis work I designed myself. A lot of engineering in that truck. Yeah. A lot of time, a lot of hand work. And, and the funny thing was, I didn't have a lot of money at the time, so I built... A lot of that using very crude tools. Yeah. You know, I didn't have like a big machine shop and all this capability, laser cutting this and that. Everything sure. was hand cut and, you know, stick welded. Yeah. Much. I mean, it was amazing that I was able to put together what I did, but, but I did. So, um, yeah. So I think that, you know, just the balance of everything, just the fact that it was a balanced vehicle. Sure. In terms of the suspension, the engine and everything that, Nothing overpowered anything else. Right. And I think um, some of that came from, I've done a lot of different uh, automotive ventures. Like I, like I mentioned, I autocross raced and did some other types of racing. I raced motorcycles as well. I learned a lot from all my other automotive ventures. And I, I incorporated those in, into my truck. Because yeah. I wanted my truck to handle well. I wanted it to drive well. It needed to be a multi-purpose type vehicle. Ultimately, I wanted it to be able to endure. Yeah. Survive something like the Top Truck Challenge, exactly. right? Exactly. Right. Because there were a number of challenges and, and they were, you know, they were very, um, very difficult. A lot of the things were very difficult and certainly not suited for something that was as specialized as mine. Here's the interesting thing about it. I completed every challenge except for one. There was only one challenge that I decided not to attempt. And that was a really steep hill climb. And I, I was, um, my carburetor really wasn't able to function on that steep of a hill. Got it. If it had been a little bit shorter hill, I would have made it. But it was a long hill. It was pretty technical and it was very steep. Sure. And um, I saw one vehicle nearly roll on it. There was a guy in a Unimog uh, that got halfway up and couldn't make it. Yeah. He tried to get down and ended up sideways and started clearing out. I mean, people were running because we thought that damn Unimog was coming down. He was going (laughs) to clear a wide path. (laughs) But so after that, I decided, you know, it just wasn't risk. It wasn't worth risking my vehicle. Sure, sure. Something you'd work so hard to build, right? Exactly right. I wanted to live to fix that and and go another day. And by the way, one of the first things I did when I got back was I ripped off that carburetor and I um, engineered a um, fuel injection system for it. Yeah. (laughs) So that's one thing that I learned for sure mechanically. Yeah. In fact, that's funny. (laughs) One of my first off-road vehicles that I had was a 1953 M38A1 Jeep. Mm-hmm. And it it had a 289 V8 swap in it, which is common mm-hmm. for that vehicle. And I had carburetors on it at, mm-hmm. in the beginning. And I just, I was constantly bailing climbs and getting right. stuck because of the, I mean, I, I wasn't a very good driver either, but you know, it, I was learning so much, but the right. vehicle wasn't helping. Right. Um, and when I went to fuel injection on that, it just totally changed the way that I could operate, right? Operate the Jeep. It really made a big difference. But it's funny how some carburetors though work great. I mean, I, I had a, a 1984 Toyota pickup that had a carburetor on it, and it never gave me any trouble on climbs. So I think it probably has a lot to do with how the carburetor is designed, and probably the orientation of the fuel bowls and and everything else like that. But and it, plus it being a really small displacement four cylinder, it probably right. wasn't getting flooded as easily. But it uh, it worked fine on climbs. Most climbs, most climbs, but right. yeah, well, that, that uh, top truck challenge for me was one of my first exposures to this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember reading all of those early four wheeler magazines and just being completely wide eyed yeah. and, and wanting, wanting to do uh-huh. the top truck challenge and wanting to compete. And, and ultimately I believe that that event lost its way because they were no longer street legal or they were very loose right. interpretations of being street legal right. vehicles, um, which I think stole so much of the charm of the event. And I even suspect that Rick Payway, who was so involved with designing the event, I think he would have preferred to it, have kept that spirit of those first couple events. I mean, maybe like the first four or five years, once they were kind of a loose interpretation Mm -hmm. of a car, um, then you realize that you were no longer looking at individuals capabilities or individuals innovations it was just it was a bunch of truggies yeah the bunch of yeah a bunch of tube tube frame vehicles which is too bad but um yeah hopefully they consider doing something like that again but but keeping it back as a you know door slammer all the safety systems have to be in place and certain limitations because that was such a neat and inspiring event for me and it was that 
paired with the Camel Trophy that formed so many of my early inspirations towards, you know, vehicle projects and vehicle performance and, and all of that. And that ultimately led to my passion for, for travel. So. And it was a really grassroots thing. And it was neat. In fact, um, you know, in that uh, very first edition, there was me. There was a guy named uh, Sonny Honiger. Yeah. Who's been, you know, active in the sport. Legend. Oh, yeah, legend. He was in the very first one. Uh, With the samurai, right? No, no. He was, he, he had his he, war wagon. Oh, but didn't he end up becoming like a samurai guy? He was, Well, he was a samurai guy, and he yeah. also had a thing called a rock spider that he built, which was <laughs> one of the very first really high articulation rock climbing. Thing. Sure. I mean, he was a, he was really a, a leader. Innovator. You know, uh, yeah, very much an innovator. And um, I was an innovator. I mean, a lot of the things that were on my truck actually showed up other places after sure. that. Sure. But, um, and then there was Rick Payway. He was one of the original competitors. As yeah. Well. He wasn't with the magazine at that point. Oh, wow. Just a guy with a GPW with a 400 and some cubic engine. In it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, yeah, what a neat guy. He oh, is. Rick was so cool. And, you yeah. know, one of the things about Rick is um, that Jeep, he was like, almost like a, a cyborg with that Jeep. He was one with the machine. He was one with the machine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he could absolutely handle that thing in any circumstance and he could control every aspect of, of that vehicle. Yeah. So really fun to watch him drive that. Yeah. He's a, he's such a, such a character. I've always enjoyed getting a chance to travel with him when yeah. I do, but and, you know, I, I haven't spoken to him since the event. Yeah. I'd love to meet him again. And yeah. And I think he's back words. in there. I think he's back in Arizona now. Oh, so is he really? yeah. So maybe yeah. we'll find a way to get him up for lunch. Boy. Yeah. Do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Cause I'd love to talk to yeah, him. That would be time. That would be great. Speaking of innovation, you, at some point in your journey, you started producing products for the archery industry. Uh, talk a little bit about what you were making and what was different about it and what makes those bows still desirable today. Well, I had been involved in archery since the 70s, so it had been a long time passion of mine, but it was one that I'd kind of set aside because of life demands and so forth. I kind of hit a lull, a lull in my life, and I decided, well, you know, it's it's a chance for me to pick up archery again. So I went back to shooting my old bows and I just realized there were a lot of shortcomings with them and a lot of really, um, a lot of the basics of what I needed weren't there. So I just went back and started redesigning these bows based on just the fundamentals of what makes an arrow fly. Yeah. You know, I just went back to the very most basic essential first principles of what makes an arrow fly out of a bow. And I designed a bow up from that. And um, that bow pretty much revolutionized that part of archery. It was a metal riser. It used, um, it used the limbs off Olympic bows, which were already highly developed. Um, so I had the best limbs in the world, and now I had the best riser in the world. And I put the two of them together, and it was, uh, it was magic. Mm. And, um, of course, you know, like anybody that upsets an industry like that, yeah. I had my detractors for sure. I had, yeah. you know, people that loved me and people that didn't. There's no question that it uh, redirected the entire industry. Wow. And now there are lots of offerings around those lines. My bow still, after all these years, the bow that I designed is still at the top of the heap. In wow. fact, uh, a friend of mine won the Senior Men's uh, World Championship IBO, I think it was last year, maybe the year before with my bow. Wow. Yeah. So it's still out there. There's still people shooting it. It's very sought after. It's sure. worth a way more now than uh, I ever sold it for. <laughs> so I wish I had a, a couple of dozen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a neat thing. And a special thanks to one of this week's sponsors, Rumpel Blankets. Rumpel started literally in the back of a van. Their story is interesting. They were on a surf and ski trip through California, and the founders of Rumpel were sleeping in a van several miles up a dirt road near a secret hot springs. They woke up the next morning in sub-zero temperatures in a car that wouldn't start. They were outside of cell reception and confronted with the real possibility of a long walk into town. So instead, they decided to bundle up up in their sleeping bags and drink whiskey while they waited for someone else to show up. And that turned into hours and the conversation extended on to the subject of bedding and they came up with Rumple Blankets. Their most popular product is the original Puffy Blanket. It is their flagship product and it's available in a one-person, a two-person, and a junior size. I have used the two-person for many years. I keep it as part of my kit that lives in the vehicle just in case I run into a situation similar to what they did 
where I'm stranded and need some additional warmth and insulation. It's also really useful for around the campfire when you want that little bit of extra comfort. Um, I'll also use it when sleeping in the vehicle and then they are just the right size for a roof tent as well. So these are really high quality blankets that are weather resistant. They're made from recycled materials. They're washable and they have very durable fabrics and construction, which makes them ideal for overland travel. Check out Rumple for your next blanket. And when you talk about your travels, I, I noticed that you have this theme of kind of simplicity and minimalism and bring, kind of bringing it back again to overlanding. Uh, you have recently been designing and manufacturing your interpretation of what an, a fully enclosed expedition camper should be. Um, I think it would be good to talk about that as a subject with the listeners, because one thing that I have found in this industry is that people get away from or they don't prioritize the things in campers that are actually the most essential attributes of campers. And they focus a lot on the things that are not essential or if they stop working, isn't the end of the world. So for example, one of the things that I see oftentimes done poorly is either the insulative properties of the camper or the weather protection of the camper. Um, you and I were talking earlier today about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we somehow are more interested in the LCD placement of the TV right. than we are in the R value of the camper right. or where the water lines run in the camper. Or if Those, there are water lines. Or if there even are water lines, <laughs> which the absence of water lines is actually better than water lines. I think for those that are listening, when you when you look to buy a camper, start off with what is the most, what is the first principle of what this thing should do, which is protect you from the weather. It should be a retreat from the storm. Now that can be easily determined by where you like to travel. If your travel is 99% in the Southwest in Baja, then maybe that camper can have some fabric sides to it. Mm -hmm. And it's not a, a primary consideration. But if your plan is to travel from, from Prudhoe Bay down to Ushuaia in any weather, then you're going to want to minimize those mechanical moving components and those wear points. Just the number of fabric-sided campers that I've seen fail just due to high, high vibration frequency on corrugations, those wear points, they show up very quickly. So um, from your perspective, having traveled so much and, and built your own campers and everything else like that, what do you see as being those first principles and those core maybe three to five elements that people need to look for in a camper before they even consider if it has a TV or not. So I think the things that are most important for me are, I think, number one, the ability to sleep well. Yeah. Because sleep is a fundamental of life. And when you start losing sleep, things are going to go downhill, going to go downhill for you very quickly. Yeah. So um, you have to be comfortable enough to sleep. Uh, you need protection from the most severe weather for sure. And you need a way to uh, prepare food inside in the event that the weather doesn't allow you to do it outside. Yeah. And after that, the list starts getting a lot thinner, you know, um, then it's just really basic stuff. You need to carry a little bit of water. You need to have a way to filter it. But um, that's, that's really kind of it for me. Yeah. Then everything after that is a luxury. I mean, the things up to that point are things that you really need. Everything after that, I think, is a luxury. Yeah, and you mentioned that that after those basal components are, mm -hmm. are satisfied, it actually becomes more of an emotional decision. Right. And I think that, and I can understand why, because in the times that I've looked at campers and trailers and things like that, I have found myself being very emotional mm -hmm. about things like, oh, it's got this really comfortable shower and it's got this, you know, right. it'll have a hundred gallons of hot water on board or whatever. And you really start to gravitate towards those luxuries, which I, I would not suggest for a moment that those are things that you shouldn't consider. It's just understanding that after those core attributes of lightness, because mm -hmm. payload is always a consideration. And even if you have a one ton truck with a 5,000 pound payload, any pound that you add will degrade the performance of the vehicle. So even if it has a payload, use a small percentage of it right. so that you gain back performance in the way that the vehicle works off highway and how efficient it is the fuel economy that you get um, it's going to cost you less to ship the thing all of that is going to be a factor in it so i think it's that durability of the structure its ability to protect you from weather and the lightness of the camper which directly correlates to performance and payload particularly on a vehicle like a tacoma that is something i think that's worth us talking about a little bit because because your original impetus for this camper was, how do I build a camper for myself mm -hmm. that will work 
within the very limited payload capacity of a Tacoma. So talk a little bit about how you achieved that in the ways that you can share with the public. But okay. what were some of the core way, ways that you achieved a fully enclosed camper mm -hmm. that fits within the payload of a Tacoma? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that you need to be able to do anytime you tackle a project like this is to not let yourself get pulled down the, the road already traveled. Yeah. You need to back up. You need to back all the way up to the beginning and you need to ask the questions that we're just talking about. And then you need to look around and see what the best materials are that can achieve these. And one of the things that I realized is that there were materials out there, you know, the materials had gone way ahead of the, of the technology in this area. A lot of the technology in this area was really set up back in the sixties and hasn't yeah. really changed much. So I looked at entirely new ways of constructing this thing. I found some materials, talked to a lot of experts. A lot of experts told me I could never do this. Yeah. I talked to some 3M engineers and so forth. They said, well, a great material, but you can't work with it. You can't bond it. You can't do this. You can't do that. Well, I figured out how to do all that. And we figured out how to put together a shell using um, thermoplastic honeycomb. It's a, a fiber reinforced material. It's extremely lightweight. It's uh, very thermally efficient. It's very sound efficient. It's incredibly durable. I mean, you can beat on this stuff with a ball peen hammer and not make a mark on it. Yeah. I, re I remember when you first got one of the small section of test yeah. panel, you said, Scott, come over here and you handed yeah. me, I think the biggest crescent wrench you had, I think is what it was. Yeah. And you just <laughs> said, just wail on this thing. On this. Exactly. And, and I, we didn't even, I mean, we left like the smallest imprint. Cosmetic mark. Cosmetic mark. Yeah, it yeah. was nothing structural. Nothing structural. And I was hitting it as hard as I could. Right. Exactly. And you know, there's nobody else you can take a ball peen hammer to. Yeah. You just walk around Expo and start hitting people's hammer, <laughs> campers with hammer and see what happens. It's not going to work out so well. <laughs> yeah, but our so camper true. can, you know, except for cosmetically, you're not going to see any damage from that kind of that kind of thing. So very strong material. And that translates directly to brush right. and trees exactly. and, you know, trail impacts right. and things like that. All kinds of deflections. Yep. The other thing about it is that the, the methodology that we develop for joining the panels allows for flexible joints. The joints are actually designed to be flexible yeah, as that opposed was to be rigid. And so they can flex almost indefinitely without failing. Whereas if you try to build a rigid joint, no matter how rigid you make it, it's eventually going to fail due to fatigue. Yeah. So fatigue is the killer. Yeah. But if you design something to move, then it's not it's not suffering that same kind sure. of fatigue. And that's what we've done. So and it seems like you're innovative. those long joints mm -hmm. being able to flex and move, mm -hmm. but you still have the strength of triangulation that's come exactly. from the angles that you've incorporated into the camper. And how much without adding a lot of accessories, I guess at its basic weight, how much does your Tacoma camper weigh, excluding the flatbed, just the camper? <laughs> Camper alone with everything in, it's going to weigh about 400 pounds. Yeah. But I've, I've removed the bed in order to put it on because it's a flat bed and everything. And it's only added about 250 pounds to the stock Tacoma weight. Yeah. Which is about the weight of a fiberglass canopy. Yeah. Right. So for, for the weight of a camper shell, I have a camper I can stand up in and I can sleep in, I can cook in. Yeah. And I can carry a certain amount of gear. So yeah, to me, it's, it's a real luxury and it's got a very low center of gravity. Uh, the entire roof of the camper can be lifted on fingertips. Four people can lift it on a fingertip. Yeah. So that's how light it is. So almost no weight high up, even though it may look large. It looks tall. There's no weight on it. Yeah. All the it's weights. just It's just air volume. It's just air it. volume. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm going to repeat that one more time for those that are listening. So the net increase to the weight of the Tacoma mm -hmm. after your camper and flatbed is only 250 pounds. Right. That's amazing. And I think that that needs to be what camper manufacturers start to look at more seriously is mm -hmm. you can't put a 1200 pound camper on the back of a Tacoma and expect it to work because right. you're at, you're at 100% of the payload capacity before you even add water or a person or your dog right. or hairbrush not in mm -hmm. our case but right. you, know, you know or whatever hair exactly. hair dryer or whatever yeah. you know before you add anything to it you've already consumed 100% right. of the available payload of the vehicle so the fact that there are campers like yours and there are other manufacturers that are starting to make lighter campers as well which is so encouraging but the fact that you can have a net increase over the stock vehicle of over 250 pounds and have a bed and a place to stand and a place to cook and completely out of the elements. That's a new standard for the industry. And it's so encouraging to see. Another thing that I really liked about 
your camper is that you decided not to incorporate a whole bunch of complex systems. Right. Um, if you want to cook inside the camper, bring in a stove and cook inside the camper. But most of the time, people cook outside right? because you don't want your camper to smell like salmon. You want right. you know the outdoors to smell like salmon or you want to cook over a fire or you want to, you know, and certainly using a jet boil on the countertop to make coffee in the morning is an easy thing. Um, so I, I actually think not incorporating a stove is smart. Yeah. Well, for my personal camper, I think people would be surprised at how Spartan it is because the camper to me is only a place to take refuge and yeah. to sleep. If I can be in the outdoors, I'm going to be in the outdoors. That's where yeah. I'm going to make my coffee. That's where I'm going to cook my breakfast. That's where I'm going to do everything. So yeah. I don't have a lot of built-in stuff, but you know, there is the option to build those things into the shell if you sure. want. You're still going to end up with a lighter camper. Yep. You know, The less you can do with, the more your mindset is around minimalist philosophy, then the more you're going to benefit from all this. And, you know, the benefit for me is I have a Tacoma that I could drive a hundred miles an hour, you know, down a washboard road with and be able to control it. And, you know, I would never try to do that with a thousand pound camper on my back. I mean, oh. it would be insane. As soon as something got sideways, I'd be rolling. So this thing is, you know, it's a phenomenal, a phenomenally good handling vehicle as a result of it, capable vehicle. And the use of the, of the flatbed gains so much interior volume. It does. Um, because you're not having that lost space with the wheel wells and the the width of the bed construction and you're gaining all of that back in interior space. So it's, and the way that you've designed the flatbed is also very clever with how it hinges and right. and at where it has those, those triangulated load points and everything else like that. It's very, very, very clever. You know, it's good to see that. It's good to see campers like yours coming to market. Uh, it looks like Scout campers got, you know, very simple systems in it as well, which keeps the weight much lower for Tacomas and things like that. So, and it looks like a lot of other manufacturers are taking note of the fact that you can't in good conscience sell a camper that is exactly equal to the payload of the vehicle because who's going to drive it you know right. like as soon as you put a human in there you're way over payload so yeah. well, there's, there's so many tacomas out there that are way over payload they really are and uh, you know it's a testament to the durability of the tacoma yeah they're but amazing still, vehicles yeah but still you know it's um i think of it and i i've heard this analogy of of thinking of your vehicle as a, as an animal or something, you yeah. know, and having some compassion for it. Yeah. You know, mechanical sympathy, right? Mechanical sympathy. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't overload a horse and expect it to carry all this crap for me. You know, I, yep. if I had to load a horse up, I'd get off and walk myself. You know? Yeah. I think having some sympathy and, and just having some respect for the fact that this thing is so well engineered that it's, it's um, incredibly reliable. I mean, yeah. these, these vehicles that we have today are so incredibly reliable Yeah, that we become complacent about it. Yeah. But we shouldn't be because yeah. they are still mechanical things and they can still fail. Well, it's something as simple as the fact that the that the back 20% of the Tacoma frame is unboxed. Right. As you put more and more weight after the rear axle, it puts an enormous amount of leverage on that frame member. And so much so that there are aftermarket kits that you can weld on to strengthen the frame. Even once you start to deal with articulation loads and leverage imparted on the rear frame members, it's a really good idea to strengthen the hangers for the rear right. for the rear shackles and so being very mindful about the fact if you keep the Tacoma light it will last you a quarter million miles all day long right um, when we get it up I, I think about my own Tacoma project my first big project that I did was on a four-door Tacoma 2004 I loaded it up and I'll admit it on this podcast it was over 7,000 pounds Oh, and, um, and that was totally wrong. I, I added so many things that it didn't need. Right. Um, I didn't think about the fact that it is, it is a light duty truck that needs to be treated kind of like a backpack, not a freight liner. Right. You know, it needs to be treated like a backpack. And if I had built that truck differently, I know that I would have enjoyed it more mm -hmm. and it would have performed better. But it's it's amazing the things that I had to do to the vehicle just to make it work. Right. How low I had to go with the axle gearing to get it to move around, changes I had to make to the brakes, the changes I had to make mm -hmm. to the frame. Um, and all of those things could have been avoided if I had just kept it much lighter. Right. And it was still a vehicle with a roof tent. It's not like it, not like I had a camper on there. I just added too much junk. Right. Yeah. It, to didn't, it. it didn't fundamentally change your experience. No, it didn't. It, just, it could have been so easy just to have a ground tent and right. call it call it a day. Yeah. I mean, so. I'll share a little story with you back from my backpacking days. You know, but um, started out with my backpacking probably around six. 60 pounds, something like that. Yeah. Which, you know, a lot of people start out heavy. Sure. And then you get lighter and lighter and lighter as you go. Well, I, 
I finally had gotten down to where I was below um, 30 pounds for a, um, and I eventually got down below uh, 20 pounds for a, a five day pack. But at one point I bought this little hammock and I thought, man, you know, what a great thing it is going to be to have this hammock at the end of the day. I had these, you know, visions in my head of swinging from a hammock. Sure. A hard day. Right. And I started carrying this thing around with me along with other stuff, you know, and I finally came to the realization that, that the real luxury wasn't having that hammock at the end of the day. The real luxury was not having to carry it 40 miles. <laughs> yes. That was the real luxury. So true. Yeah, so you know? true. I mean, I could sit on a log. I could yeah. lay on the grass. Yeah. You know? I mean, I could do all those kinds of things. I didn't have to carry them there. Yeah. Um, and so those were the kinds of mental processes that I went through that I carry over into my vehicle mm-hmm. philosophy as well. You know, that sometimes the greatest luxury is the thing you don't carry, the thing yeah. you don't have to worry about being stolen. The sure. Thing you don't have to maintain all of those kinds of things. So talking about your current Tacoma project, um, which you've had since the vehicle was almost new, um, how long have you had your Tacoma? 10 plus years? Yeah, I bought it with 30,000 miles on it. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the things that you have done to that truck that you most appreciate that the changes that you made made the best difference for the vehicle for your kind of travel? I think, um, I think, and this is kind of true of any vehicle, but I think the tires and the suspension were the best thing. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I did some chat work. You know, I've done extensive work on that truck. Yeah. It's hardly recognizable at this point. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, you know, the tires and suspension were really the biggest thing. And what is your current favorite tire for the vehicle? Um, I prefer a, a 255 85 16, but I also like uh, the 235 85 16. I sure. like skinny tires and I don't like large tires because um, the mechanical loads that they put on the vehicle are just way too great. Yeah. I think one thing that, you know, where people go wrong with tires um, is that they don't really consider the weight of the tire. Mm. And when you go to a much larger tire, you're going to get a heavier tire. But even with smaller tires, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of difference between the weight and uh, tire. Yeah. And what I typically try to tell people is that if you add a if you add a pound to your tire weight, it's like adding 10 pounds to 12 pounds to your payload. Yeah. So like within uh, the 255, 85, 16, you can, there's like a, a 40, 50 pound range over four tires, yeah. depending on manufacturer, right? right. So um, that's, 405, that's 400 to 500 pounds of payload, essentially that you're putting on the truck. If you look at it in terms of braking, acceleration, and even things like the way the suspension. Oh, I see what you're saying. So the, the reciprocating, <clears throat> because it's reciprocating mass, right. Right. it has much more leverage on right. the system than right. some kind of a static load or even dynamic that's affixed to the vehicle. Right. It's all dynamic loads. It's, yeah. either, it's either rotating mass or it's reciprocating mass. Yes. And in this case, so, it's both. It's both. So you're trying to accelerate it, stop it, and right. control it. Right. So you're right. Yeah, having Paying attention to the tires. And, and that's a good point. If you have a lightweight vehicle, like don't put an E-rated tire on your Samurai because it, there's not. it's going to be hard to get it down to a low enough pressure to deform properly. Right. And then you're hauling around a bunch of unnecessary weight. Right. Um, that the vehicle just doesn't under any conditions need, right. you know, because it's so lightweight to begin with. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point and something that's important for people to remember. What are some of the things that you've done on your suspension that you feel made the biggest difference on your Tacoma? You actually alluded to it earlier, but um, the rear frame on the Tacomas is pretty flexible. And so I've done a lot of chassis work back there. And I also have done some cross chassis work to strengthen the spring hangers in the rear because the way they're designed on a Tacoma the spring hangers will deflect under load. So I have a system in there that keeps the spring hangers from deflecting. Okay. So everything stays in alignment. But everything that I've done is very careful not to stiffen the frame in terms of its ladder type flexibility, because that's actually part of the suspension. In the sure. Car. And if you make, if you do away with all that ladder type flexibility, then you're going to end up with a, with just a board. You know, you're not going to have, yeah. you're not going to have any kind of uh, articulation yeah. in the vehicle because the actual suspension, the actual articulation from the suspension is not that much. Yeah. But I mean, I can roll over an 18 inch rock without deflecting anything else. Yeah. So, you know, I still have all that flexibility in there. Well, that's an interesting point. And, and if we strengthen members of the frame that were designed by Toyota engineers Mm -hmm. to flex or to rotate, et cetera, then all of that leverage is going to be put somewhere else. And maybe it'll be at a frame crack. Um, And I, I actually experienced that um, in Greenland with the Hilux, which the Hilux frame is boxed all the way to the back. 
And these had been reinforced because they, the suspensions were changed from leaf spring to coil spring to accommodate the 44 inch tall tires. And we actually had a frame failure on a, on a Hilux after, well, after it went into a crevasse, but that's another story. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, we actually had a frame failure because of the fact that it had been so heavily reinforced in one area Mm -hmm. that it actually broke at the area that it was like most lightly reinforced. So yeah, you're right. It's just going to move those leverage points someplace else, those failure modes to some other place. Whereas the stock Tacoma frame is uh, flexible enough where it'll take those inputs and it'll move and flex much like a spring would. Um, And you want to allow it to continue to do that. Whereas if you get over payload, then you have to try to fix that Mm -hmm. because then you get this huge beaming effect and all these other changes and characteristics. So yeah, you're right. Keeping it light, then you don't have to do too much on that. Because I remember when I looked at your, what you did in the back of the frame, you you actually retained the ability for the frame to flex right. um, because of those joints that you incorporated. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to stress to you that a lot of these types of changes are serious engineering challenges. Yeah. Um, and they're not necessarily intuitive to the average uh, garage type modifier. Yeah. So if you're going to make these modifications, be very careful. Yeah. Because like you said, you know, you stiffen one thing up, you're going to move the stress to somewhere else. So yeah. where's that gone? And is that going to be, you know, potentially hazardous or Sure. Whatever. Everything has a consequence, right? Everything has a consequence. Yeah. And it's so easy to forget that, you know, yeah. we, every time we change something on the vehicle, we do make it oftentimes less reliable. There are very rare occasions where, especially in a Toyota, there are very rare occasions that making a modifications to those vehicles, make them more reliable. Like one that comes to mind is on the 80 series. There's a small heater hose at the backside of the block. Mm-hmm. And if you upgrade that to a much better quality heater hose, then you can reduce a, a failure mode. But there are very few of those kind of modifications. Right. So with every time we change the vehicle, we're, we're affecting those engineered systems and those redundancies and those buffers that the engineers from Toyota incorporate that make them so reliable. So just being mindful of let's do less of that mm-hmm. and keep it as close to stock as we can or right. or only change the things that we really, really need right. to have changed for sure. Right. And there again, if we keep things light, then the need to do those things becomes minimal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You so, really don't yeah, have to make that many changes. It all works together, you know? Yeah. It's just like, you know, getting back to backpacking. You know, I, I carried an Arcteryx pack for a long time. Fantastic pack, you know, carry huge amounts of weight in that thing. But I realized that, you know, when I got my pack down to 19 pounds, I was carrying it around in a 12-pound pack. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't need a 12-pound pack anymore. I got right. down to a three-pound pack. You know? Yeah. Again, you know, if you can if you can cut down on what you have to take, then then the means to carry it becomes far easier. Yeah. Expenses lower, fuel economy is better, driving experience is better for sure. Um, Along those lessons learned, I I do like to ask this of our guests. What are some of your favorite books in all of your readings and that time that you were able to spend alone, you know, in Wyoming and maybe on a Sunday and reading a good book? What are some of your favorite books that you've read in your in your life? That's a really tough question to answer because I've read a lot of books. Um, I've read all the classics and I've read almost everything from people like Hemingway. Stein, um, Steinbeck, Orwell, yeah, um, all of these people. Abby, I really enjoyed Abby. I've read everything they've written, and I've read a lot of other authors. I think if um, I had to pick one book, and this is just a disservice to everybody else, I mean, but it would maybe be um, Victor Frankel's *Man's Search for mm. the Little Book*, little paperback book. Mm. And if people haven't read that, they should take the time to read it because it's 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 a quick read. And it's pretty profound in a lot of ways. Uh, For those that are listening, um, I read that book recently, and it talks about um, this gentleman's experience um, in the Nazi concentration camps. And it, by the time you get finished with his story, yeah, it was, it was profound and it was just extremely humbling. And um, it's a reminder of how life can change so quickly. And also it shows the the possibility of the human spirit, what he endured and how he came out of the other side of it with um, his own humility and his own awareness around life and others. Um, Yeah, it's a really powerful book. It's something that people should take the time to read. And I've heard that recommended by others as well. I would, I would definitely second that recommendation for sure. Yeah. And, you know, he makes the point in there that some of the strongest individuals were the first to go. Yeah. It's, it's the people that are the most flexible. Yeah. 
that survive. Adaptable. Not, adaptable. Not the strongest necessarily. Yeah, no, that is so true. Yeah, the ones that I remember him saying that, the ones that were sure they'd be out by Christmas or right. sure they'd be out by, by right. whatever holiday, um, those were usually the ones that mm-hmm. would give up the quickest. Yeah. Right. yeah. And I can't even imagine, I, I don't apply any experience towards those thoughts that I just shared. It's just what I gleaned from him, his insights um, into that experience is yeah, very, very profound for sure. Is there any others that come to mind? Uh, well, if you want to read an author that's still alive, one that I read recently is uh, Ryan Holiday's uh, Silence is the Key. Yeah, Stillness uh, that, is the Key. Stillness is the Key. That's, yeah. That's um, an easy read as well. Great read. Yeah, but it's um, it's it's a very good read. And I think it, it has a lot of lessons for modern society. Yeah. And I think... Um, a lot of people are really suffering now. I mean, you know, you and I grew up in a time before so much noise, yeah. you know, and um, now there's just constant distractions, social media and everything else, you know, but at least we have a, we have our roots in a time when there wasn't that. So we're a little, maybe a little better at coping with it, but for a lot of people, it's overwhelming yeah. and they don't even know it. They don't even realize the negative effects that it's having on them. Yeah. But this book makes you think about that and uh, you know, maybe it'll change your habits a little bit. Yeah, it's a beautifully curated piece uh, from the Stoics. And it's probably the book that I've gifted more than anything else is that book. So that's another wonderful recommendation. Yeah, it's, and I think it very much applies to travel. Yeah. We have such short periods of time to have these experiences. Mm-hmm. If we can find a way to get into the right mindset right. Of, of just being open to those experiences sooner, where we can uncouple from our devices and our day-to-day yeah. and our and our patterns and everything else and become the traveler, the more right. quickly we can do that and be open to those changes, the more profound our trips, I think, are. So I, I really see that as being another great volume for people to read, yeah. for sure. Well, it really gets to the point that, you know, travel at its essence is in our head. Yeah. We think about it as an external thing, but it really is an internal thing. You know, travel is a chance for us to to frame our life and ourselves and the world mm. in a way that we haven't seen it. Yeah. And to internalize that, you know, the travel is, I think, a necessary part of it because when we're wrapped up in our daily mundane lives, it's very difficult to, to see mm. beyond that. Mm. So when you're out there, you're able to see beyond it. But ultimately the travel that happens, the journey that you're on is in your head. Yeah. And so you can have it 50 minutes from your house or you can have it 50,000 miles away. Yeah, know? sure. Another little story I'll share with you if, if you'll allow. Yeah, for that. sure. Yeah, um, love it. I'd love to experiment with these kinds of things with myself mentally. So I've done a lot of unusual things. Um, but one thing that I decided to do, I was traveling through Moab many years ago and I was in a very remote area. I was entirely alone. I didn't even have my dogs with me on this trip. I decided that, um, I needed to spend one whole day, just one day of my life without doing anything. Mm. And this is difficult for me. You know, I'm a, you know, you're a busy guy. I'm yeah. a busy guy. I don't sit still. Yeah. So I, I decided that I wanted to watch the sunrise and I wanted to watch the sunset and I wanted to do nothing in between other than just be aware of everything that life brought to me. I didn't yeah. want to make anything happen mm. at all. I made up a little bit of food, put it in a bag, got some water, got a little sitting pad. And I found a place up on a, a bluff with an extraordinary view around me. It's almost 360 degrees off this little sand dome. You know, you just find a lot of those out in yeah. Moab. But I climbed up there in the dark, sat down waited for the sun to rise. And I sat there all day long, except to get up to use the bathroom. But other than that, I didn't move. I tried not to think about anything. Um, I tried to give my surroundings my 100% attention. So I wanted to be aware at every moment of the temperature, the position of the sun, the sounds around me, the animals around me. Mm. And uh, at first I thought, you know, about 30 minutes into this, I thought I am never going to make it (laughs) because it's just not going to work. And then then a couple hours in, I started getting into the rhythm of it, you know, and by three or four o'clock, the hours were just flying by mm. before you know it, the sun was on the horizon. Mm. I sat there the whole day wow. and, and that was the most, you know, it, it, it really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, we can travel thousands of miles to have these experiences or we can just sit still and pay attention. Mm. You know, you can get to the same place in your mind, but it really has to be through your attention, not necessarily your location, your location or your itinerary. Sure. People get so hung up on that. I want to see this. I want to see that. I want to stop here. I want to go there. Mm. You know, and they think the more they cram in, the more they're going to experience when in fact they would experience more Mm. just sitting. I would venture to say that I experienced more of Moab in that one day than most people do staying there in a week. Yeah. You know. Because you were open to it. 100%. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I do an almost daily kind of quiet time like that where it's, uh, you know, meditative in my own way. I mean, I'm really bad at it, but if I make it to 15 minutes, uh, I started at five and I got to 10 after about six months. And now I'm at about 15 minutes. And it's amazing. If you don't have any of those other inputs, I don't let myself look at my phone. It's all shut off. And right. My monkey mind is going in a thousand yeah. different directions. But I think that has been really good for me because it makes me realize my mind is constantly going in a thousand different directions. Yeah. And now after I've been doing it for over a year, uh, maybe I'm only going in 750 different directions or Right. Some days I might get to 500 different directions, but I can notice the change. I can notice that I'm more productive during the day. It's helped me work through things that would occupy my mind regrets or whatever. Right. So yeah, I think it's really powerful. So for you to do an entire day, that's amazing. That is really cool. Yeah. Well, and now it's something I, I want to do again. I want to start doing more of those things. Again. Yeah. I've kind of been, you know, I go through these cycles, like you say, I've been wrapped up in my business and you know how it is with a business. Yeah. It really intrudes on your time. Um, I do meditate every morning, just as you do. Yeah, I get up at four four thirty, so I have a long day. But that is totally uncivilized, man. It's uncivilized. <laughs> but, um, no, I'm, you know, I'm kidding. Some people are no, early risers. I no, I am not is. an early riser. So it's you know it's 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 brutal. I mean, you know, when I meet people for breakfast, they say, "Well, when do you want to meet?" And I say, "No, no, no, no. You need to pick when we meet for breakfast yeah, because right. I will be unreasonable." <laughs> You're halfway through your day by the time you meet me for breakfast. I'm ready for lunch by the time you want to meet. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, yeah. I know it's unreasonable. Yeah. I do get up early partly so that I have the time to do this because it yeah. does help to center me for the day. Yeah, that's so and, good. And, you know, this process of being aware of the fact that your monkey mind is going crazy and then redirecting that back, mm. um, that builds neural pathways. Yeah. You know, and, uh, it seems like it does. It does. Yeah. And so the more you practice it, the more those pathways become ingrained yeah. and um, it becomes the tool that you can use at any moment to bring yourself back from that insanity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From the brink. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That leads me kind of to one of the things that I really wanted to ask you, because I, I think you'll have so many insights for the listeners is if you were to recommend or just have some suggestions or some thoughts, even for someone that was coming new into travel, new into overlanding, what would you share with them? What would be your top three to five pieces of, of advice or suggestions that you would give to, to someone new to travel? Just to give a little perspective, I guess, you know, my very first ex experiences in this were in a 1965 Oldsmobile Delta 88, big giant car that I bought for $300, but I was so glad to have it. You know, I was 17 years old and I immediately started driving it places. You know, I did a lot of traveling around Southern Arizona and I did a lot of traveling in the backcountry with it, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's got like six inches of ground clearance, <laughs> like a five degree departure. Or something. <laughs> sure. So I drugged that thing through sand washes and everything you could imagine. But the point is, um, I didn't have tools, you know, I didn't have a winch, you know, turns out nobody made a winch bumper for an old Z. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know when I bought it, but, but no, I didn't have any of this stuff. Right. Sure. And, um, it, it really was about, um, it really was about overcoming my, my own gremlins in my head, you know, yeah. the fears of traveling, the fears of breaking down. And back then there were no cell phones. So if you broke, if you drove 15, 20 miles back into the desert and broke down, you were walking 15 or 20 miles out. That's sure. it. That's the way it worked. Um, so, that's the way it worked. Yeah. So there were no other options back then. But, you know, these days there's not a lot to be afraid of. Yeah. So um, I would say not to focus so much on the physical things. Past the things that we talked about, you do want to be, you want to have some shelter from the weather. You want to be comfortable so you can sleep and those sorts of things. You want to be able to fix, you want to have water and you want to be able to fix food to eat. But beyond that, you don't really need a lot. Yeah. So um, work on the aspects of your character that would allow you to travel farther and more confidently. Yeah. You know, things like security, confidence, competence, all of these things are things that you develop within yourself. They're not things you build into a vehicle. Mm. And ultimately, if you try to compensate with the vehicle for things that you lack, you're going to end up paying the price for that eventually. Yeah. In more ways than one, right? It, yeah. You pay the, the price in money and time mm -hmm. to try to accommodate for that. And then mechanical things will always fail you. I mean, yeah. I've, I've had land cruisers not start. It's, right. it's very rare that that happens, but I've had land cruisers let me down. You're right. I think that, and maybe it's because that's what we're reinforced in. That's what the message is oftentimes in the industry. And that's why we try so hard in this podcast to try to remind folks that, mm -hmm. It's not the stuff that's going to give you the great experience. It's right. the, it's the doing, it's 
it's the going, it's the seeing uh, that's going to make you more and more confident. If you look at the early travelers, the early around the world explorers, they had a fraction of the stuff that we have available at our fingertips today on a phone. That's right. And it's just amazing what they accomplished. And they just right. did it from their own desire to see and to go sure. and, to go, and to do. So that's wonderful advice, uh, reminding people that let's work on ourselves first. Let's make right. Let's get some education. Let's get some training. Let's go out and do it and get lost and get stuck and right. break down and figure it out. So that way we have the confidence in ourselves right. to explore a little further next time. Right. And, you know, try to see the world through the eyes of a traveler as opposed to a tourist. Yeah. You know, because there's a big difference. You know, you can have all the Instagram photos and all the videos and you can have all the vehicle and all the all the gear and you know, you can visit all the fancy places, but if you never internalize any of it, then you really haven't traveled to those places at all. Yeah. And and you haven't taken advantage of the places that they can take you in your own mind. I, mm. That's really the essence of it, if you will. You know, there is a, actually that brings another thing to mind. There was, um, there's a movie called uh, Walter Mitty. Yeah. It? Great movie. It's a great movie. I love that movie. Yeah. But, um, and I'm not going to spoil it for people that haven't seen it. I think, you know, that I think that any of us that have a, a yearning, to go do this should watch that movie. But in the very end, you know, at the very end of the movie, they really show you what the most important thing is. And it's, it's not the extravagant experiences so mm. much as it's the small experiences fully experienced. Yeah. If that makes sense. I, no. I, I'm trying to word this very carefully, not to give away the ending. Yeah. In the very end, you know, that uh, what they call the uh, quintessence of life or something yeah. is this very, very simple thing. Yeah. And, and the guy that thought that he didn't have any of it, basically had it all. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting lesson. Yeah. And you can travel all over the world and see nothing. Yeah. You can travel a few miles away and see it all. And you're yeah. a much better traveled person. No, so no question. Just remember that. And, and, you know, it doesn't take a ton of money. It doesn't take a fancy vehicle. It doesn't take a ton of gear. Yeah. Pretty much anybody with the heart and the desire to do it can do it. Yeah. So thank you for that encouragement, Dave. And thank you for all of the great conversations that you and I have shared around breakfast here in Prescott. And yeah. that's really what inspired me to want to have you on the podcast is that I have learned so much from you. And as I've shared before with the audience, I, I know less than 5% of what I hope to know about this subject. And I have learned, you have definitely moved the needle for me in the things that you've shared and the lessons that I've learned from you and your travels and the way that you prepare vehicles and equipment. So I'm really grateful for our friendship and I'm grateful for you having been on the podcast today and for reminding people that it isn't about checking boxes. It isn't about how far you go. It's maybe about how much we learn about ourselves and about how much we learn about the place that we're in at that moment. That's right. It's a good lesson for life, too. It is. And I guess one last question, where can people find out more about you and about Turnoverland and some of these new things that you're bringing to market? What's your website? Uh, the website is uh, turnoverland.com. And uh, we also have Instagram accounts and so forth. If you want to learn more about what we're doing with uh, the camper, you could also contact uh, AT Overland because they are partnering with us on the building of these campers. Perfect. So, yeah. Yeah, that way people can see a little bit more of these amazing new products you're bringing to the market. I like yeah, it. Absolutely. Very good, Dave. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you, you being on the podcast. Yes, sir. It's a pleasure.